Good evening, my name is Kevin Day. Welcome to the Soho Theatre on October the 27th, 2013 for No Pressure to Be Funny, created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel and podcasting on the British Comedy Guide. So, since our last show, Boris Johnson went to Beijing with George Osborne as part of an attempt to improve Anglo-Chinese relations, which is a bit like sending sausages and a fur hat to Paul McCartney. <laughs> According to Boris, his 16-year-old daughter is travelling to China to learn Mandarin, although we suspect it's to get as far away from him as humanly possible. Can you imagine how embarrassing it must be to have Boris as a dad? That's why so many of his children haven't been told. <laughs> Uh, since the last show, of course, we've had the royal christening with uh, seven, seven godparents with incredibly posh names. Definitely the first christening in history with more hyphens than chins. <laughs> and one topic we won't be covering tonight, by the way, this is uh, very serious. We're definitely not covering this topic tonight. It's free schools and untrained teachers because uh, the argument is utterly clear-cut to us as a podcast. If you're passionate about something, you don't need training. End of story. If you're passionate, you don't need training. Oh, the big storm, by the way, that's on the way. It might come in earlier, we've heard. Not from the Met Office, but some friends of ours. They're not trained meteorologists, but they're very passionate about it. (laughs) And we should warn you, if the storm does hit early, it could cause structural damage to this building. Uh, Not trained civil engineers, obviously, but we are very passionate about it. (laughs) And if you do get hurt, don't worry, we're here to help. Very passionately. (laughs) Fair enough, you look at the government. Ian Duncan Smith has no formal training in robbing poor people, but he's passionate about it, so... (laughs) It's very good, isn't it? Uh, we'd also like, of course, to welcome our listeners from overseas, particularly the American intelligence services. <laughs> if you could just let Barack know, we'll be giving him a call later, once Angela stops shouting. Uh, as responsible broadcasters, of course, can we remind you to put your clocks back if by one hour if you haven't done so? And if you're listening in Saudi Arabia, do you put them back another 25 years? That would be lovely. Uh, And if you are listening in Saudi Arabia, good luck if you're a woman. Uh, If the Daily Mail is listening, by the way, we are all wearing poppies. Because not doing so, of course, makes us Kaiser-loving communists helping Bob Crow dance on the graves of dogs killed by the Taliban. (laughs) Now then, should we have some music on that note? Should we just have some lovely music from the uh, group of people I love very much? So please, making a welcome return to No Pressure To Be Funny before a trip to Rome to take on the Vatican's new cricket team, please welcome Johnny and the Baptists! A survey came out this week uh, that said that one in ten people uh, believe that UKIP are a party of the left wing. (laughs) Which is worrying. So uh, we decided we'd do a song about how we became involved in UKIP. Someone I don't know It said that you and I Could lead even better lives I got a letter today From the UK Independence Party I thought they're not for me But why not I'll go along And when I got there Everyone was dancing They were all English And dancing so Englishly And I thought to myself How could they be wrong On UK Independence When they're so right on party I got a letter today from the UK Independence Party I thought they're not my bag, but the EU's full of communists I got a letter today, it was written in blood And the blood was beautiful, like really good blood 
And at the party there were a couple of black people But they'd been born here so they were welcome too They seemed so English we didn't need to hide our wallets I mean we still did but we really didn't need to And that's the point They were black people and we were absolutely fine with it Maybe we should have sex with it. What, like a threesome? Yes, a farage à <laughs> You need to vote for us in the European elections Cos British people have no say in the European elections Apart from voting in the European elections In that sense, I suppose you have a say in the European elections Did you know there's no one left living in Eastern Europe? They've all migrated here to work in health and safety. They live off benefits and won't let us watch Jim Davidson. They're made in Brussels by a bureaucratic baguette machine. Whoa, whoa. We'll make Britain great again. Whoa, whoa. Free corn beef for the under fives. Whoa, whoa. The Queen's Jubilee will be every day. Whoa, whoa. Then we'll retake India. in power We haven't got a clue but it's worryingly likely All decisions will be made by the Queen The UK Independence Party We think Britain's an economic power Some of us are also in the EDL Never mind, just vote for us Johnny and the Baptist. The time to meet this week's panel. Please welcome Alex Andreo, Chris Neal, Marcus Brigstock and Polly Toynbee. Thank you. Sadly, Russell Brand was unavailable, so we had to get someone else from the New Statesman instead. Alex Andreo's Twitter profile describes him as CEO of nothing, which is how the FTSE 100 refers to women 98% of the time. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, Chris Neal is a Canadian professional ice hockey player who plays on the right wing, unlike our Chris Neal, who plays Owl in the animated series Poppycat. The Daily Mirror once said of Marcus Brigstock, if you haven't seen him live, you haven't seen him at his very best. So apologies to those of you listening on the podcast, because you can't see what we see. <laughs> and The Guardian's award-winning columnist, Polly Toynbee, recently described politics as a lousy, rotten profession, until she was asked to retract her statement by a delegation of rotten louses. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the panel are now please welcome, with the devil's advocate motion that energy prices aren't being raised enough, Mr Alistair Barry. Thank you, yes. The devil's advocate believes that energy prices aren't being raised enough. For the benefit of listeners on the podcast, could I just say that I am looking lush this evening with three extra jumpers, a woolly hat, scarf and gloves that mean I'm sweating like Stuart Hall in the exercise yard. <laughs> I also have a hood on so that I can entice you over to the dark side, which is where most of us live after last week's rises. 
Like many government ministers, I love knitwear, as it provides a genuine alternative to feeling comfortable in my own home as the nights draw in. I don't, of course, own my own home, as I live in London and don't speak Russian or control an oil field. It's probably a good job I can't afford a decent home in the city I was born in, so I'd only bring the tone of the neighbourhood down by not driving my uninsured supercar through the streets and assuming I could bribe the police. David Cameron is now introducing the help-to-buy system, which brilliantly ignores the fact that house prices have spiralled wildly out of control in the UK and instead promotes the idea that what people should do right now is get into more debt. It's not as if anything went wrong last time. How else are Wonga.com supposed to keep themselves in puppets? <laughs> so, when I've bought the place in mid-Glamorgan that I've got my eye on, I plan to invest in more knitwear, because let's face it, if a house costs this much, you can't expect to be able to afford to heat it as well. The energy companies have recognised this and adjusted their prices accordingly, proving once again that as far as big business is concerned, the recession is mostly something that happens to other people. Quite why Red Ed Miliband wants to put a freeze on energy prices is beyond me, when the energy companies are so intent on freezing us in our own homes that our fingers are going to be too cold to tap in our pin numbers in the first place. In a rebranding exercise to rival their PR coup on Twitter this week, British Gas is changing its name to British Gas and claiming that the entire process is part of a wider bid to promote the British knitwear industry, which, as a confirmed jumper wearer, I am hugely in favour of. British knitwear is the best, which is why we get so much of it made in structurally unsound factories overseas that don't even need heating, which is handy because they probably couldn't afford it, just like the rest of us. Thank you very much. Polly, I mean, there's so many startling figures, but effectively, energy bills have tripled in the last nine years, which is way more than raw material prices have risen. And wages have effectively fallen 10% in the last five years. What? Yes. Huge gap between what people earn and uh, what they've got to spend. And half the population have seen their real living standards fall back. And that's happened ever since 2003. Uh, we've got more and more unequal gap between what people earn and uh, what they can afford to buy gets wider and wider. And uh, it's a pretty scary prospect. <laughs> Marcus, with all that in mind, why was there such a stupid fuss? I mean, the, the ludicrous tab tabloid headlines about Red Ed dragging us back to the socialist 70s with possibly the only positive thing a politician has suggested. Mm. On, for, on, why, uh, yeah, it, why did it take for British Gas to introduce ludicrous pay rises? Well, again, I mean, I think the in, in terms of the tabloids and, and some of the broadsheets as well, I mean, I think there are genuine concerns when you look at Ed Miliband's parentage <laughs> his father seems to have been and I don't know how much you read about the man but he seems to have been an absolute shah wrong him. yeah dreadful yeah. no I, I, I don't I don't understand it it ought to be an easy sell and I don't quite understand why the newspapers broadly speaking have not have not fallen in behind it the, the thing um, that really pisses me off about the energy debate is this disgusting rhetoric used by the government 
when they, they refer to normal energy consumers, you and I, people, and say, well, they're not competing. People are not competing. I mean, this is a, a competitive market that we set up. And if you don't change your supplier to somebody cheaper, like everybody was taking part in this process of, oh, yeah, that's what we want. That's what we all wanted from the beginning was a competitive market. And to spend our days comparing energy prices across the thing, it's bollocks. And most of us are not interested in doing it and don't have time to do it. And I'll speak for myself without wishing to patronise anybody else, don't know how to do it. Mm. And it they're seems not cheaper anyway, because the moment you switch to something, then it, it, it too adds the yeah. another 10%. It's rather like, you know, I spend a lot of time joining the co-op bank to avoid the wicked banks. Mm. And then the hedge funds taking over it, taking it over. You know, you can't win. But yeah, but interest rates are much better now. Uh, the co-op, thank goodness. <laughs> also, you, can't, you, you also can't win because you know, David Cameron weighed in with some very helpful advice, at, along with the Sun, which is switch provider. Yes. As Martin Lewis, the Sun's own energy expert, uh, money-saving expert, said, the, the worst thing to do now is switch provider because you're switching to people who haven't raised their prices yet. And you don't yes. know how much more they're going yeah. to raise their prices. Yeah. But, but Alex, the Mail on Sunday today are trying to convince us that the vast majority of the British population are only exercised by the green levy, the, 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 the £187 of the bill per year that goes to the so-called eco-tax. What they daily Do you believe that? Any, well, it's not even that, is it? Because only about £50 of that is going to renewable energy. The rest of, the, of it is going to, um, to help people sort of insulate their homes and... Uh, and put on put in double glazing and so efficiency saving measures um, rather than green um, renewables. I, I mean, to me, the answer is so blindingly obvious, um, so and yet revolution. nobody will say it. Mm. You know, take them back under national control. It's yeah. it's absolutely it is completely mental. There was a, a a land of milk and honey promised, in theory, in the late seventies and early eighties. And clearly, some industries were ripe for that, and it has happened, and it has gotten better, and it has gotten competitive. But other industries that are basically monopolies have become oligopolies, and they're just screwing everyone for money. And I don't understand why no one will step forward and say, well, we nationalize them, which seems to be a huge vote winner in every poll as well. I don't get it. I don't. Chris... I want to involve you before we get a general debate. I, I like the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury um, said there should be a moral consideration to commodity pricing. And I, I admire his faith, uh, his simple faith, um, <laughs> that any of the people he was talking to would have a fucking clue what he was talking about. <laughs> but I mean, when it's coming to something when the Archbishop of Canterbury effectively weighs in and does his job and says that there is a moral issue to this as well. It's, it's, it's immoral. Whatever the reason they're raising the money for is essentially to pay shareholders. And is it a moral? Is it a moral issue to raise... Well, you could say that as capital... I'm very intrigued you used the word oligopoly. I like that. It's a great game. It's a lovely name. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose you could argue under a capitalist system that they work as companies, don't they, because their responsibility is to their shareholders. And if you were a shareholder in British Gas and not a gas bill payer... Um, then you're doing very well out of it. So you can't argue with them, as, 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 but it's a kind of indication that capitalism doesn't really always work in the best way for everyone. My recommendation is to spend more time in Lidl. You, uh, you can spend hours in Lidl never finding what you want, and that way you don't have to put the heating on. I kind of... I go there every day, and 
not having a job apart from playing Owl in Poppycat, which is quite demanding. Um, <laughs> I find that I find that you can, you know, there's no point writing a shopping list for Lidl, which when you're trying to save on the gas bill is a good thing. But you can't think, oh, I'm so busy, I'm just going to go to the supermarket once this week. It won't work in Lidl. You go to Lidl and you're going to go, oh, what they got in today? Or like a sort of French housewife. You're, you know, you're, you're shopping with what the market provides. And you kind of, and, and you think to yourself, oh, that's lovely. You know, they've, they've got a cauliflower, what a treat. Or they've got a, they've got a, a, a My Little Pony self acupuncture kit. I, I kind of, I'll stock up on those. Um, also, blackboard film lovely I didn't think I wanted it but it'll be a treat you know that kind of thing and you so you pass your time and you go you I, I wanted there were three things I wanted I, at my age my wrists are getting quite weak so I kind of like to you know do a bit of shopping every day and as I say it saves on the heating and he went I had three things I wanted and you see this is why you should go to light little and Aldi and the savings you save there you can give to British Gas with a clear heart and <laughs> I needed a bottle of Romanetti, uh, which is Lidl's own brand martini, but a third of the price, and two packs of diarrhoea relief, and a Savoy cabbage. And it was my lucky day. They had them all. And the other good thing about Lidl is in the colder months, you don't get... The reason they do a thing which other supermarkets don't do... Uh, sorry, I'll get to your question about morality shortly, but... Um, <laughs> The, the reason uh, they can charge such reasonable prices is that they don't utilise something which other supermarkets call staff. And, <laughs> and so if you do go to Little or Aldi, you really have to put the best part of a day aside for the task. And I was in a queue. It's worth taking a book with you, really. And... Um, <laughs> I was in a queue at Lidl, and it was a very long queue, and I was a bit worried that the novel might run out before the time I got... So <laughs> I did notice, actually, the, the cashier didn't say anything to any of the customers at all. I was thinking if I was a cashier in a shop, we might have a sort of chat with people. He didn't say a word to anyone. But 20 minutes later, I was served, and through went my bottle of Romanetti, my two packs of diarrhoea relief, and the Savoy cabbage. And he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, having a party... Um, <laughs> And after I toyed with going home, but then I thought, no, I'll have to put the heating on if I do. So I decided to go back and get my little pony self-acupuncture kit after all. Anyway, morality, no, it's awful, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to say about morality. No, of course it's not. No, I think, you know, when it's, a, when it's something vital, it's a bit like, you know, when a market doesn't function, like the housing market in the southeast of England, it doesn't, it, you know, you, you can't pretend that a market works best. It needs to be regulated. Mm. If you can't have something essential like a roof over your head or the ability to keep warm without choosing whether to feed your children or not um, and little obviously is the answer to most things in life but that's not going to work on those occasions so it you is a morally bankrupt situation yes if, if parliamentary question time was more like that i would listen to it a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> if you just had somebody from each side to do a lovely surreal five-minute monologue and then answer the question you know what you can get in little shampoo in a tin can Really? Yeah, it's terrible. It's oh, acid, but you just have to... <laughs> it's amazing. You see shampoo in a tin can. If I'm buying that, it's German. It's fantastic. That's really good. And does it... You use it in one go, because otherwise it's like beans left in the fridge, isn't Not it? It's horrible. You know, is that... I wouldn't use it in one go, because I'm more rearranging than washing it. Yeah, no, I, it but... would really last me a long time, <laughs> a tin of shampoo. <laughs> I, I quite admire the, the, the glee with which David Cameron announced that one of the ways around the energy price thing was that we would create our own energy by asking the Chinese to pay the French to build nuclear reactors, which he seemed to think was a wonderful thing. Is it a wonderful thing? 
Well, it's very peculiar that we can't build these things ourselves, and it's very peculiar that we should ask the Chinese to have their own nuclear program right here. Then they don't need a missile system to, you know, they can just <laughs> press the button any time they want. It's also quite quirky that the, the energy industry was privatised under the Conservatives, and then 20 years later is handed over to the Chinese Communist Party to run by a Tory government. So it's sort of, it's quite touching, really. They've kind of gone very left-wing in a kind of weird, roundabout way. But then I think probably the Conservatives are more frightened by the French element of it than they are really <laughs> by the Chinese. <laughs> we all should be. I mean, a French-run nuclear power station, they have a two-hour kip after lunch. <laughs> That's going to be the most dangerous time, isn't it, between about one and three in the afternoon. I'm going to wear a foil hat. <laughs> you do wonder whether somebody in the government said, perhaps we should look to the Japanese to build a nuclear... Oh, no, perhaps not. <laughs> um, but, uh, Marcus, I know, because you're exercised by a green issue, I mean, it's good to see that the Russians charged the Greenpeace protesters with piracy, because I think it's one of the great ways for the, one of the world's biggest military powers to deal with some people who had banners. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Definitely pirates. They looked like pirates, they sounded like pirates. I think they've downgraded the charge now to hooliganism or ah. something. Sea-based hooliganism. Yeah, sea-based hooliganism, the worst kind. Um, <laughs> um, yes, uh, I, it's the the entire situation in in Russia seems to be, it seems to be quite extraordinary. I mean, for a kickoff, I am now absolutely convinced that Vladimir Putin is gay. Now, I'm totally and know. utterly convinced. Well, I, I my look, I bummed him, and I'm not sure. <laughs> Order. Well, that. that <laughs> The fuss, the fuss he put up was more for the benefit of the people watching than from any sincere place. Well, can, I I, can I point out that you do have Polly Toy bit one in? When he... <laughs> I beg your pardon. Nyet means nyet. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be an awful lot of... Why do you think he's gay? Well, my suspicions were first aroused when he had his m male friends photograph him riding around topless on a pony. We've all done it. And uh, <laughs> so, so there was that. But no, the, the viciousness and vehemence with which Russia is, is turning against their lesbian, oh, gay, bi and trans, transsexual. Thing, yeah, yeah it, that is extraordinary. And I, ha I ended up having a debate with someone saying, look, there are far worse, far more oppressive anti-gay uh, regimes that exist in the world. But Russia seems to me to be the only place that's consciously moving backwards, yeah. mm -hmm. that's making a choice to go backwards. Yeah. So between that and Pussy Riot and Greenpeace, I, as a massive fan of winter sports, I was born into that sort of thing, sorry. Um, I, uh, I hope that someone's going to kick up a, a, a real stink at the, at the Winter Games. Uh, the Olympic um, uh, Commission and all of that lot should be, in my opinion. There's quite, a, there's quite an encouraging um, uh, response from Coca-Cola at the moment with their sponsorship of it in that they've said they're thinking about it. Rather than well, I mean, I genuinely think that's encouraging because usually well, they go, oh, "Do shut up." It's slightly off topic, but the the IOC have got the same moral paradigms as FIFA. Basically, and FIFA is an organisation who is happy to give the World Cup both to Russia, mm. uh, who have the most racist football fans in the world, and to Qatar, a nation with no football history, where homosexuality is outlawed and women are not allowed to watch football. So I wouldn't hold your breath for the IOC to suddenly decide. No, that probably not. Yeah. So it's lovely and warm in Qatar, isn't it? It's very warm. <laughs> lovely and warm yeah. for the British fans because they love getting their top off. Well, they? <laughs> there won't be many British fans there. English in, fans. In, well, not, there won't be many no. English fans there, not in protest at the gay laws, but the fact that alcohol is illegal. 
So I think once they find that out... That should be fine. There'll be a lot of football fans going, I don't mind the gay thing, but if I'm not having a fucking drink, that is out of I'm not having my first gay experience sober. Let's put it that way. That'll be really bizarre to watch, actually. Sober English fan. So this is a very important topic. We have to move on to another important topic now. I'm going to bring Nick Revel on. Nick Revel is going to get from internet beheadings to the great British Bake Off. In 90 seconds. I think we should all hold our breath for that. So please, Nick Revel. This week on Facebook, you could share a video of a Mexican drug gang beheading an informer, which Facebook defended by saying it gives everyone the chance to make up their own mind on the issue. Uh, So so I tweeted, um, can't decide if I'm for or against beheadings until I've seen a few more (laughs) online. So many grey areas. (laughs) You know, it might seem repellent, but uh, what if it's tastefully done, sympathetic lighting, if everyone involved is a consenting participant, maybe it's empowering for the victims, so don't judge. Anyway, the, the tweet got retweeted, which is always nice, but I think maybe the irony got lost somewhere in cyberspace. There's one comment I got back was, One good thing about showing them online, she was from Canada, is it shows people just how vicious Islamic terrorists are. So I replied, or actually I sighed uh, and took a deep breath and then replied that the issue here was, one, do you really need to see a beheading to know it's horrific? And two, the video in question had nothing to do with Islamic terrorists. And the person replied, to their credit, oh, I didn't know that. Why is Facebook allowing those videos? Yeah, because, you know, if you're not using the internet to promote religious hatred, then it's immoral. Same day, I read Ruby... 90 seconds. Ruby Tando's piece in the paper. She was one of the finalists in the Great British Bake Off. Uh, and she's writing about all, these hor- all this horrible online vitriol and spite being directed at the contestants. Sexual insults, really nasty character assassination over cake baking. A mild example, right? Raymond Blanc said that she couldn't know anything about food because she was too thin. Yeah, I mean, what a great idea... The internet initially seemed, making freedom of expression and debate available to everybody and destroying the power of the traditional gatekeepers, be those gatekeepers culturally, class or wealth-based. Turns out, all people want the freedom to do is call someone a whore for committing liturgical deviations in a cake recipe and to argue that public access to non-judicial executions is a keystone of democracy. The list could be longer there, obviously, but we haven't got all all night, uh, blurred lines, don't get me started on that one. But uh, in the old days, at least you had to have some kind of artistic merit or personal drive to publicise challenging political views or transgressive moral positions. You had to get a book published or get your paintings in an exhibition or make charismatic speeches in a Munich beer cellar. Right or wrong, at least you had to put in a bit of effort. Now all you need is a couple of drinks and a keyboard. In the old days, if you were an idealistic social reformer, you could wander around imagining that most people denied a voice were fundamentally decent, dreaming of a time when everyone would have the right and the opportunity to express their fundamentally decent opinions, gave you something to aspire to, something to live for, liberated from shame and repression. We would all grow towards the light and flourish. And now that day has come, and it transpires that everybody's utterly vile, bigoted, ignorant, spiteful, and completely uninhibited about sharing it all. Liberated from shame makes us all monsters. Now, 
I'm not saying people shouldn't have opinions. I'm just saying that if you do have one, please consider it's probably worthless based on prejudice, spite and ignorance, and you should just keep it to yourself. Anyway, that's my opinion. Uh, I'm off now. I've got to kidnap Raymond Blanc, video him making a Victoria sponge, and if it's not any good, I'm going to cut the French bastard's fucking head off. Thank you very much. Dear Revel. Chris, Nick raised some very uh, interesting points here about freedom of expression, so I'm going to come to you first and ask, what is your signature baked product? Well, I, uh, I've got nothing to say about Great British. I haven't, I haven't got a television. I'm saving on the electricity bill. Um, and you haven't so got, I, a t- got a TV? T- I've got a TV. In what do you I'm, talk about in pubs? Uh, well, I don't go to pubs very oh, much. Oh, fair point. Little takes up all my time. <laughs> um, uh, no, I've watched Coronation Street online, and uh, really... That's quite satisfying enough for me. But my, I, I don't, I'm, I'm a very keen cook. I'm not a great baker, I have to say. There's, a, there's an Italian fruitcake called a Cetacino, which mm. is rather nice, with pine nuts and apple and uh, some dried fruit and things. I'm very fond of a cheese straw. Um, <laughs> is there anybody here that's been encouraged to take up baking purely because of that programme? <laughs> most no, people, you've got to be born to bake, haven't you? Most but people who bake say the best thing about it is licking the spoon. Right? Agreed. Okay. Most who watch on porn that say basis, the best thing about just it to challenge you slightly on that, have you ever made a cake mix and then just eaten it? Because <laughs> if that's really. You have. I love you. You're brilliant. If that's actually the best bit, why not just mix some raw eggs and flour and sugar and then just eat that? Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> Alex, have you? Uh, they're, they're talking now because inevitably, what the BBC will do when they get a simple success is tamper with it, tinker with it. They've already announced that the next final of the next Great British Bake Off will be live, which concerns me slightly because most cakes take about two hours to rise <laughs> in the oven. So there's going to be a lot of filling while that goes on. But uh, do you just assume that they will actually make? They'll turn it, as somebody said today, they will turn it into the X Factor eventually. The, the, they'll, they'll lose all the simple things that make it an unusually popular programme. So it will be like a, a test match version of... Uh, of the, the <laughs> only marginally less dull, yeah. <laughs> With people just they talking. S- he says the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I hope they don't, because I love the show, and I have absolutely no shame in stating that. Mm. It alleviates my crushing boredom and loneliness in the evenings. <laughs> and, um, have you met Chris? Yes. <laughs> 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 I, I saw him in Lidl earlier. Um, so I, I love it because basically I'm lonely and I love cake. And if I ate cake whenever I wanted cake, they would have to cut me out of the house and airlift me to Jerry Springer. Um, and so, and so this, this watching people making cake is perfect for me. It's, absolutely, it's like those uh, conveyor belt uh, sushi places where you feel, you feel like you've eaten a lot more because you see it all going by. They're never going to get you really? to do an on-air testimonial, are they? This appeals to me because I'm lonely and I eat cake. <laughs> I think it's perfect. <laughs> do, you, do you agree? There, there are some people who say, um, rather cynically, that the producers do what the producers of Midsummer Murders do, and they, they, they include... There's plenty of shots of deck chairs and lush Somerset scenery. And, and only one black person. And, squirrel, and well, squirrels with erections. And virtually no... Well, the, one black contestant in yeah. the final, none in the audience whatsoever. No. So they are... Are they, do you think, peddling a romanticised English world 
that doesn't exist, or if it does exist, it's no bears no relation to the world that people in this room at this moment would recognise as English. The John Major world. Yes, essentially, yeah, very much so. We love John Major now. <laughs> Introduce a windfall tax for whoever wins Bake Off. <laughs> a, a decent idea. You have to bake a windfall cake. If you've made over a billion as an energy company, you have to build a special cake that you then charge a million pounds a slice for yeah. to your customers. We're going to have another song, so please welcome back Johnny and the Baptists. When I found out uh, earlier this week that uh, Angela Merkel's phone was uh, being bugged by the US, I was most worried that um, they'd have found the love song I left on her answer phone. (laughs) We've come full circle, Angela Merkel said things that were hurtful. Angela Merkel, let's start a new chapter in our Merkel chronicle. I love you so much, you drive me berserkal. You've made Europe workal, Angela Merkel. You've made Europe workal, just like clockworkal. Your knowledge of things fiscal and economical is unparalleled in our universal. And you didn't shirkle. Admission impossible Without you, Greece and perhaps Portugal Would have gone hurkling into a downward spurkle So let's rebrand the Euro as the Deutsch Merkel And I hope this doesn't make you too megalomaniacal You're so strong, Angela Merkel You could get tyrannical You're more powerful now than Baruch Overkel You could take over the world not just Europe, but at night I just dream We could take a mini Burkle, you and I, Angela Merkel At October Furkle, we could eat pickled gurkles And wear later Herkel, when you dance it is wonderful If a little too twerkful And I'll take you on a journey to Constantinople Wait, I am Mysterkel, it's now called Istanbul But I know in my heart it could never ever workle You're the Chancellor of Europe We write songs that are top urkel <laughs> We've come full circle Angela Merkel said things that were hurtful Angela Merkel, I love you so much Angela Merkel, I love you, I love you Angela Merkel, Angela Merkel Angela Merkel, I love you, I love you you, you're so kissable Without you I can't Even vocalize my desire For Angela Merkel And Merkel, Merkel Angela Merkel, sweet Angela Merkel Johnny and the Baptist Fantastic We've had some suggestions from the audience. Uh, we don't have much time, so I'm going to throw this one specifically to you, Alex, because one of the questions from the audience is, uh, is Russell Brand going to be the next Prime Minister? I hope not. Will he be invited back to New Statesman? Um, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, I find him annoying and right <laughs> in equal measure, which makes him more annoying. <laughs> so that's, that's basically my view. That's very good. Well, let's... Um, Let's move on with our next story, which is uh, it's an astonishing slice of medieval life brought back into the real world. There's a little blonde girl who was found in the Roma camp in Greece. It turned out, of course, not to have been abducted 
after all. So what is the world coming to when you can't even rely on a few basic prejudice demonisations of marginalised <laughs> ethnic groups? It, it, do you know what strikes me as odd about this story, Alex, amongst many things, is that the, even the tabloids are being very careful and using the word Roma now, as though that kind of makes it all right. It's like we're accused... No, we're not saying gypsies. We're saying Roma are stealing babies. <laughs> and it's a, it's a really odd... It's a, you can almost imagine... But I'm sorry to interrupt. I think that, that plays into uh, some of the rhetoric around what's happening January 1st. Yeah, yeah. That, that Roma is now a better loaded word for them than okay. gypsy because Channel 4 have made gypsy funny... Ah. Gypsies, sort of, they're funny, aren't they? They're funny, they've got funny ways, but Roma are dangerous because they're coming. And they're all going to arrive in one afternoon on the south coast of England and actually capsize Britain. <laughs> Scotland is going to be catapulted into the south of France, <laughs> where, of course, it's too sunny for them. You're right, you every, you, every, yeah. every Romanian is now a Roma. That's, yeah. that's what So you say, that you say they're going to all arrive in one day, but all you need is a little van driving around with a sign saying, if you're here illegally... And they'll all yeah, go. go home. <laughs> they'll then, all go. Yeah. Do, you, do you know what the BBC's reaction was to the news that the Bulgarian Roma woman who was DNA tested turned out to actually be the mother and confirmed the story? Their reaction was to say, I kid you not, thousands of families around the world will be very disappointed. Okay. Well, because they hoped, lost a child. Yes, because thought, they hoped yeah. it, it was their Western bl- blonde child that had been abducted. Well, well, this is not a happy ending at all. It's, it's a serious point, Chris, because the, yeah, the, the tragic case of Ben Needham crops up year on year, as, yep. will, as will Maddie crop up year on year, as the tabloids have yet another week of dull stuff that they decide to spice up a little bit. Mm. So there is a serious point, Chris, where the, you know, the, the mother of Ben Needham constantly, even today, another blurry snapshot of a child, a 22-year-old, who could be her child. And this, the, you know, the assumption simply is that it's, it's easy for him to be kidnapped by a gypsy. This is, this is what we're being sold, that we live in some medieval world where gypsies blithely steal children, unnoticed by other Roman families. It's, it's, it, it, mm. So it's, it, not only is it dreadful ethnic stereotyping, it's also playing on the emotions of of vulnerable people who can't begin to accept the loss of their But it's worse than that because what this government is doing is is denying that there are a lot of women, and maybe some of them very young, who are being trafficked. And they're being uh, sent straight back to where they'll be trafficked, straight back to this country or another country. They're uh, not taking it seriously. Mm. So that on the one hand, you've got the, the, the great myth that gypsies are out to steal everybody's children. Uh, and anybody who looks at all different from their parents, if they come from a, from a Roma background, a gypsy background, uh, should be taken into care immediately. And on the other hand, you know, the children who really are in peril are, uh, you know, the, the, the really trafficked children are just being treated as and badly as we treat And yet no one notices royals that look nothing like their parents. <laughs> <laughs> just like to see. Some of the broadsheets have done this as well. They, they, there's speculation about the, the buying and selling of children within Roma communities. Uh, but surely somebody should be saying why are economic circumstances so bad for so many people that they're forced to sell their fucking children? Nobody's doing it lightly, are they? I wouldn't have thought so. I don't have any children myself, and that's not because I've sold them to anyone. I just... I would have thought... Um, the little do them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd have to be careful, because they'd look like children. You get them home, and they you turn out to be something else. <laughs> oh, this is beans. Shampoo in a tin. <laughs> Maybe they do bags of broken children. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
no, can I say that's Neto? <laughs> uh, who do bags of broken children? Not little, thank you very much. No, of course, he's horrible. But it is this thing, the idea that you could, that, that in this day and age you kind of go, oh, you don't look like your mother and father probably stolen and we all kind of go <laughs> you know the, 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 you know on the BBC the assumption was that, well there's a new story here you know that you did go you did go oh, yeah well you know best look into it to be on the safe side really you know you never know you could easily be wandering along in your gypsy caravan one day and come across a small blonde child and and you know and pick it up thinking it's a bag of clothes pegs and you know it wouldn't be their own it's horrible I, I want to read this joke out as I think this is the finest satirical joke Revel and or Alistair has written on the subject of Roma prejudice. It's, it's nice to see the police reopening the Madeleine McCann case after a BBC Crime Watch special, as it's good to see the BBC helping with a crime involving children rather than simply providing the venue. I particularly want to do this story because it's a story that refuses to go away, and we have people I think it will be uh, <laughs> shocked and shaken by it, to be perfectly honest, namely Marcus, because he is posh. Um, and it, it's, it's the fallout. This is the rolling plebgate story, which for me is... A, uh, for yes. me, there's no... I, I, it's like watching France play Wales. I there's no losers. But I can't choose to decide who... I don't know who to support in this one, because, <laughs> frankly, they're both... Because it's... You know, but it's astonishing. It has, it, it's, a, it's a small story, Mark, and I will come mm. to you, because if, you know, they could, it could be you next. You know, if they can stop somebody like Mitchell, they could... It's a small story, mm. yet... The ramifications refuse to go away. Yeah, well, yes, it's a small story because this happens to people all the time, and loads of uh, of people when they they've gone out, I've seen interviews, uh, lots of young people being interviewed, going, yeah, no, that happens to us all the time. The police say we did a thing or we said a thing. Uh, They came, they searched us, then they said uh, we called them a fucking copper, cunt, wanker, whatever, and then they're nicked and all the rest of it. Uh, And it happens to a lot of people all the time. However, uh, it seems, uh, the the indication seems to be that this was a conspiracy. This was planned and thought through, which is more sinister than just your casual So you're saying it wasn't a reaction to... A specific incident, and they said, "Let's." It may kids. well have. It may well have been, uh, but I don't think it was the reaction to what took place there and then. It seems to have been planned from a little bit before then. Uh, on the flip side of it, and it certainly doesn't weigh it out. There was an appetite, which I certainly recognise in myself, uh, for it to have been true. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, and I'm sorry that I, you know, I tweeted about it at the time, made plenty of jokes about it, and it, it served me well. It served but, the opinions that I hold well, and it seems not to have been true that he used the word pleb. But Alex, that's the, almost the genius of the police in this case because it, that's knowing, not a sentence you no, get no, all know, the time, <laughs> is it? That's, that's a rare one. What I'm, saying, what I'm saying is, knowing knowing what we know about the person they accused, it was ever so believable that he would use the phrase that they made up. They, they obviously clearly thought about a salient phrase that we would believe, you know, and they, did, they didn't put words into his mouth that we thought he wouldn't say. I mean, or the, non, the non-cynical view might be that the police officer involved, because remember, underneath all these machinations by senior policemen and um, sort of uh, commissioners, etc., etc., at the bottom of all this, you just have one copper that said, I, he said X. Um, so it could be that he misheard him. I mean, it could be as simple but as that. Well, hang on, hang on. Well, Remember what Marcus just said. If any ordinary person swears as a policeman, mm-hmm. and he admits he did, 
they get naked immediately. Yeah. And so how come that it was just about the question, about the pleb question, not about the fucking question? Mm, mm. And, uh, you know, the, he was being treated differently anyway. I mean, over, over the years, The Guardian has covered so many cases where people have been really badly stitched up by the police. And this, the fact that they can do it uh, on the pleb word uh, to a, a cabinet minister just shows that it is so deep in the culture that they can rewrite their notes, whatever they say will be accepted by the magistrates or by the courts, and a lot of people are accused of really quite serious things mm. and uh, get locked up for a long time. I mean, is there a, is there a, a, a flippant point, Chris, that is there even a, a scintilla of a chance that somebody in the government might say, well, if they are so capable of stitching up somebody like that, perhaps they are doing it on a daily basis to... Do you think, I don't think it would occur. I can't imagine Theresa May sitting back getting very worried that this might be happening to people mm. who aren't colleagues of hers around the cabinet table. No, I think that's extremely unlikely. And, and the other point that's sort of gone for nothing is that it was Cameron that threw him under the bus um, before anything had been proven, mm. before anything had been evidenced. It was, it was his own boss that threw him under the bus for political reasons, that didn't stand by him, and that mustn't be lost. I didn't make Mitchell lose his job. Mm. Cameron made Mitchell lose his job. Well, it's not normal to swear at the police no. because they won't open a gate for you with your bike. I mean, that's not normal, and people shouldn't be allowed to swear at the police. So, uh, you know, the fact that he didn't say pleb, we wish he'd said pleb because it just fitted everything so well. <laughs> Sadly, he didn't say, he didn't say pleb. Or maybe he did, or maybe he didn't, but it seems as if he didn't. But he did, but he did swear at the police. I say it was all the BBC and The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> but Mark, and Marcus as well, we do need to wrap up and forward. It's hard to believe that it will be investigated fully. Properly. Considering that Hillsborough happened in 1989 and the deaths of those people still haven't been resolved. And who caused. So you can't imagine that this will be investigated or well, th This level. won't be made a priority. No, I would think what they'll probably do is, is Hillsborough first and then this, mm. you know. <laughs> well, uh, well, they've probably got a list of stuff they need to do. <laughs> we must get round to that, and Hillsborough be, must I'm, be moving up What I'm saying is there will be a lot of things they get to first before they do this. This is not going to change anything in police culture, is it? This is not going to make anyone stop and think, the perhaps we need to look at ourselves. No, I don't, I don't think so. No one's going to be made an example of, are they? In the and police? the notion that, that you can realistically change... Cult, the culture really of almost anything takes generations to change. And the notion of being able to change police culture would change the fundamental thing. And this will make my life difficult, but bollocks to it. It wasn't the bright kids at school who wanted to be policemen. It just wasn't. It just wasn't the smart kids at school who wanted to be coppers. I've met a few smart-ish coppers, but, you know, it's going to take a massive effort to try and make a job in the police force appeal to anyone other than policemen. Mm. <laughs> Just, well, perhaps probably... I mean, there is a type. You'll yeah. have met yeah, them. I've, no. I've met plenty of them at football. But Polly, I'd like to give Polly the final... <laughs> Sometimes it's my fault, apparently, I've been told. I'd, Polly, I'd like to give you the final... Was there an element, Polly, when the story came in at The Guardian, as I hinted before, that The Guardian really didn't know who to support on this one? that you could go to town on both, you know, because... Yeah, I think, well, in the beginning, it did look as if 
he had said pleb, because you couldn't quite believe that the police would really stitch somebody up in that situation. It seemed incredible. Well, you, don't and live, yet this you, don't, week, you don't live in Norbury, do you? Well, this <laughs> week, but, you know, in, at the gates of number 10, I mean, if they do it there, where else are they doing it every day in every magistrate's mm. court? And to have senior policemen appearing in front of parliamentary committee, as they did this week, and saying, no, I don't think they need to be disciplined for that. Mm. I don't think that's a discipline, disciplinary offence. I mean, that's utterly bizarre. They write down, they agree their notes, they change their notes, they stitch somebody up. They invented a crowd of a, 32 foreign tourists that normal. were... That, that was a bit... Mm -hmm. That was a detail where you kind of think, you know they were sitting in the pub going, what do you reckon, 32 foreign tourists shocked by the language? Mm. Well, one of them would have gone, no, that's a bit too far. And the others would have gone, no, fuck it, put that down. And it's quite unlikely yeah. that they would be disciplined. I mean, they're not disciplined for shooting dead people carrying table legs through a street, so it's very unlikely they'd be disciplined for making up a word. Fair point. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to uh, thank you very, very much for taking part in the show tonight. Your positive energy has been much appreciated. Uh, and I'd like in particular to thank our panel for this evening. It's Chris Neal, Alex Andreu, Marcus Brigstock and Polly Toyman. Thank you very much. For